citizen, the training, chapter twenty-one. Harry was a minister with his family's church in Columbus. He recently met an elderly woman in a nursing home who had just moved in, and had all her things in storage. They included a sleeper sofa, dishes, pots and pans, and all the necessities to start a new life. In contrast, Tracy had left Granny's house with a one-way bus ticket and nothing but faith. So Tracy bought some of the church lady's home goods. That weekend, Tracy, Harry, and Brian loaded them into a rental van and headed for Akron to find an apartment to put them in. This wasn't easy to do in one day, particularly in February, so they put everything in storage there. Lynn followed to take Harry and Brian back home, and they had an early dinner. Afterwards, lake effect snow surrounded them as they drove to their hotel, which seemed foreboding. Well, Harry said, we leave in the morning, and you start work on Monday. That's true, Dad. Tracy said, but didn't catch his point. His father's calm was also disconcerting, given the silent barrage of snow that assaulted them. Then. Tracy was hit with a similar unvoiced ferociousness, as he realized he was about to be marooned in Akron. Hey, Dad, what about transportation? I thought about that too, son. Harry said, which wasn't an answer. Let's see what the Lord will do. Harry decided. He's done much more than I could, and I don't want to interfere. They know you don't have a car, but I am here if you get stuck. The next morning, Harry, Lynn, and Brian left for home, and God had things lined up for Tracy's first professional job. As Tracy reviewed his welcome packet, Amy called. She was his liaison and got Tracy a ride with a fellow recruit staying at his hotel. Then. Tracy spent the week getting acquainted with his job, and most importantly, Dale. He was Tracy's department head, and they were two of a kind. In fact, Dale was originally from Charleston, and had hung out at some of the same neighborhood bars Tracy had. Dale was a little man who looked hunchbacked, but only because of his carriage. A lot like Moody, Dale was a cussin', smokin', drinkin' guy. Who happened to get into nuclear when it started? Dale's jaw was permanently clenched. His breath was consistently fresh with bourbon, and clucks of dams that usually involved God punctuated every phrase. Now, when you get to Lynchburg for training, Dale said, "You're gonna meet Paul." As they walked, Dale showed Tracy the huge warehouses. Where they assembled and inspected the pristine inner workings of nuclear reactors, he's the guy who set all these fandangling systems up. Dale explained, "He's going to teach you. That way, he don't have to come up here every gongling a time something thinks about going offline." And Dale turned to Tracy. 
And uh, don't you worry about a car. Tracy didn't know how Dale knew, but that seemed to be the way things worked in this new season. God not only showed up, he showed off. By the time you're done with your training, you'll have had two paychecks and not enough time to spend them. That'll get you started on a down payment. Now, come on, let's take a break. As much as Dale kept Tracy engaged, Amy worked everything out behind the scenes, a lot like Bond's money penny. On Monday morning, Tracy was packed and ready for his training. As he waited outside his hotel, Harry called to check in. Hey, Dad, Tracy said. How are things going, son? Harry asked. Things are good. I'm leaving for Lynchburg to train for two weeks. That sounds good. Uh, Did they give you a car? They said they were flying me. Goodness! What airline are you flying? I don't know. They just told me to hand them this piece of paper. Is it a boarding pass? No, and there are no markings on it other than my name. My, my, Harry mused. How are you getting to the airport, son? They said they were sending a car. And as Tracy finished, a limousine pulled in front of the hotel. You mean a cab? Harry asked. No, Dad. Tracy reported. It's a limo. And Harry's voice went extremely high. A limo? Mr. Staples, the driver asked, who seemed a lot like Bond's Q. Yes? Tracy answered, and he showed the driver his piece of paper. Let me get those bags for you, Q said, and loaded Tracy's luggage. I have to go, Dad, Tracy said. This is so exciting, Harry said. Unlike when Pete acted like Bond with the steering column on the Fiat, this was the real deal, and Miss Moneypenny, a.k.a. Amy, didn't disappoint. Have you had breakfast, Mr. Staples? Q asked. If not, they have food waiting for you when you get there. And he continued as he drove. We had trouble getting you a rental car, Mr. Staples, because you are not yet twenty-five. We couldn't do it legally, so Dale called the president of Hertz. They worked out a deal, and the company co-signed. The car will be waiting for you when you land. The address of your hotel is in the training packet that I put in the front compartment of your luggage. They arrived at the airport and drove down a side road to a hangar with the Babcock and Wilcox logo painted on it. The limo stopped, and Q got out and removed Tracy's luggage. But there was no one in sight. They stood on the tarmac in silence until Tracy looked at him, so Q turned to answer. "'You are taking the company jet,' Q explained. "'Dale didn't want me to tell you.' Tracy looked around. "'What do I do?' The pilots will be here in a moment, Q said. I am waiting so I can hand you over to them. 
and at the mention the pilot and co-pilot appeared from an adjacent building. Gentlemen, Q introduced, meet Mr. Staples, and Q shook Tracy's hand goodbye. Have a good time. The pilot went into the hangar to prep the jet for takeoff, and the co-pilot followed with Tracy's luggage. Once the plane was out of the hangar, Tracy went up the small steps. Tracy was seated, and the co-pilot went to the service area and came back with the box. Amy heard you like chocolate-covered cream-filled doughnuts from Krispy Kreme, the co-pilot said, and opened the signature white box with green polka dots. Tracy was speechless. It was a full dozen and his favorite. Do you want one? Tracy asked the co-pilot. Oh, no, I'm fine. And he shut the door to the cabin. Tracy did another check and saw only empty seats. Who else is coming? Just you, the co-pilot said. As soon as we get the plane level, I'll get you a drink. In Lynchburg, the rental car waited at the hangar. On the front seat was another packet of information about Tracy's classes and local restaurants. In two weeks, Tracy completed his nuclear training without a hitch. Then he was flown back to Akron. As Dale predicted, Tracy had enough money for a down payment on a car. Instead of a new one, Tracy bought a used Subaru for $1,000 and called it a day. In another week, Tracy had an apartment that was the entire third floor of an elegant old house, with bay windows that overlooked the city, and Tracy marveled at God. In less than two months since getting instructions to get the Sunday Columbus Dispatch newspaper, Tracy had a great job, a car, and magnificent apartment, a far cry from sitting at his childhood desk contemplating failing college. Tracy's life was made anew, and, as he would find out, the plan included saving Freddy. Hello, everyone. Tracy here. I hope you're enjoying my story. We'll let you know how to support this podcast later. But for now, the best thing you can do is follow us and share it with your friends and family. So if you like what you're hearing, please help us out by telling people about it. And thanks again. For now, at work, Tracy became Dale's right-hand man. For the next two years... Tracy donned astronaut-worthy clean suits and climbed up narrow gaps in generators the size of trailer homes. Technically, Tracy ran the robotics equipment to test the imperfections before a reactor left the plant. He also traveled off-site if there was an outage, discerned the cause, and made sure everything was safe to be put back into service. Unofficially, Tracy was the liaison between the programming heads who couldn't get their ties dirty and the union workers 
who couldn't hand him a screwdriver without checking their contract. The suits worked on one side of the street, the union guys worked the other, and Tracy got his exercise. In between, Dale told Tracy stories of the early days of nuclear power. One particular time, an alarm went off during testing. Everyone froze in place and heard a high-pitched sound. This meant there was a pinhole leak in a superheated steam pipe. The technicians carefully grabbed wooden broom handles, which were kept at the ready throughout the room. Then they gathered at the center walkway to exit behind Dale. They walked single file, one step at a time. Dale methodically waved his broom handle in front, up, down, and to the side. Suddenly, the tip of Dale's broomstick flipped off four feet in front of him and ricocheted off the sidewall. That broomstick was seared clean through instantaneously. And Dale laughed. I guess we better not go that giggle-flickin' way, I said to the boys, and we about faced it to get the hell out of there, waving our broom handles and safe-steppin' the whole way. And Dale chortled, immensely pleased with himself. Yes, sirree, Dale said. I've never seen it happen, thank God, but if a body didn't know no better and just ran out across that jet of steam, their head would be cut clean off, no blood or nothing, cauterized. The body would keep running, and the head would just fall to the floor. But the danger didn't stop Dale from having a little fun. When the pair went to Norfolk Naval Shipyard to do an on-site inspection, it was Tracy's first time there. The only thing Dale said was that they were going on board for the inspection. As Dale and the newbie passed the aircraft carriers and battleships, Tracy wondered. Silent naval personnel led them to a long, narrow slip of water, which was no more than seventy-five feet wide. "'Okay, Tracy,' Dale said. "'Put the equipment down by the edge.' It was routine for Tracy to carry the equipment while Dale met their host. Tracy's job was to stay with the gear until they knew what was what. But it was almost dark. Uh, we'll be right back, Dale said. We gotta go to the bathroom. And in a flash, Dale and his cohorts vanished into a nearby boathouse and out of sight. It was peculiar but Tracy stood alone in the huge, vacant space. Soon, bubbles appeared in the black water of the slip, first a few small ones, followed by large, inverted gulps of air that churned the water. More came as two large cylinders rose from the middle, followed by a whale fluke that became a tower. The water sheeted off cleanly as the width of a townhouse elevated three stories a few feet from Tracy's face, which was followed by the surfacing of the whale-sized body. But that's not what Tracy experienced. As soon as the inky murk began bubbling, Tracy reverted into his nine-year-old mind. His flashback of Jaws was complete with the baseline soundtrack, 
and not being able to put his hands in soapy dishwater. As the tower rose, Tracy's stomach churned, and he started to pass out. But Dale's laughter brought Tracy back in time, and the naval officers caught the lines to secure the submarine. You were a sight! Dale screamed. Tracy was doubled over, but when he caught his breath, Tracy was honest. Y'all almost lost yourself an employee for your plan. But Tracy recovered. He boarded the sub, and even within the small, contorted spaces, frequent travel and diplomatic shuttling, Tracy excelled. A year later, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. Because of the company's experience and his security clearance, Tracy had prior knowledge of Desert Storm. It was about that time Freddy called. There were rumors about the upcoming war. Freddy's tour was up, and the Army wanted him for the reserves. Tracy urged his brother to get his discharge because there were so many unknowns. So Freddy returned to D.C., got a job, an apartment, and a girlfriend. Then Freddy trained in computer science for his company, and things seemed good. About a year later, Tracy had to travel for an outage near D.C. He swung by to check on Freddy, but Freddy still wasn't healed. It was difficult for him to come home without Vera there. That anchor had been ripped from him, and Freddy found it hard to adjust. To cheer things up, Tracy and Freddy went to a shooting range with David. After they dropped David off, Work to Do by the Isley Brothers came on the radio. Even though Freddy drove, it didn't stop him from singing the doo-doo-doo bridge in Tracy's ear, like when the brothers were eight and nine. But when the song was done, the happiness from another time brought Freddy back too soon. I miss Mom, Freddy said, and it gets me into a funk. I can't escape. Well, Tracy said, maybe we should pay her a visit. Freddy looked at Tracy, who had a weird expression. Come on, let's go together, Tracy said, and reached over to put his foot over Freddy's, and he accelerated the gas pedal. Cut it out, cut it out, Freddy yelled, and struggled to regain control of the car. But Freddy remained depressed. That Christmas, Tracy stayed in Akron. Freddy went to West Virginia and called Tracy from Granny's house, low and dispirited. I miss you, man, Freddy said. I wish you were here. As soon as Freddy hung up, Tracy packed a bag and drove the three hours to surprise his brother. They talked late into the night, but a year later, Freddy still had trouble. With so many emotions from the military, their mother's death and being on his own, Freddy still couldn't get his footing. One day, Freddy called out of the blue. Tracy was at the beginning of his lunch break, and Freddy was crying. How are you able to get through this so easily? Freddy asked. God, Tracy said, 
but knew that didn't explain much. So, how do I do this? Freddy asked. It, it all happened so fast. I wasn't there for Mom, and then I had to get back to Germany. I, I still feel so lost. Well, I listen to a lot of TV evangelists. Tracy began, but stopped. Freddy stayed silent as Tracy realized he wasn't the one for the job. Freddy, can you stay on the line? Tracy knew Lynn was also on her lunch break, and he dialed her for a three-way call. Don't get upset, but do you remember Lynn? She was at Mom's funeral. Don't freak out, but I also call her Mom. I am dialing her now, and... She'll know how to get you through this. Okay, Freddy said, and tried to pull himself together. When Lynn answered, she didn't miss a beat. Hey, Mom, Tracy said. I have my brother Freddy on the line. Do you remember him from when we buried our mom? Sure I do, Lynn said. He's still grieving, Tracy said. And I don't know how to lead him or, well, break this down for him, but I thought you could. Okay, Lynn said. Hi, Freddy. Are you there? Tracy listened as Lynn led Freddy in an effortless conversation. Like a surgeon with a blade, Lynn comforted Freddy with scripture and her words turned the dark into mirth. Through the course of the conversation, Freddy's soul was saved, and Tracy felt he witnessed a miracle. Freddy was going to be okay. Lynn became another mom for his brother, and Tracy was reminded of a scripture himself. Mark ten, twenty-nine, And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospel's, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time, houses, and brethren, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, with persecutions." and in the world to come, eternal life. 